In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis from all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. And today I'm joined by AJC Capitol correspondent Mark Nisi, who has made voting rights one of his the most important parts of his beat. How's it going, Mark? Going great. How are you? I'm great. So you had the other day published a in Sunday's AJC a blockbuster report. We want to get right into because it was it was such a it made such national and statewide waves. Um, tell us about the story and what it found. Well, we already knew that a lot of precincts had closed since the Voting Rights Act was weakened as a result of a Supreme Court decision a few years ago. 214 precincts closed in Georgia since 2012. And are these in rural areas and metro areas? Are these kinds of scattered across the state? They are scattered across the state. I believe it's likely that a little bit more in rural areas. But really, if you look at the map, there's no real pattern to it. You see it in, I believe, 53 out of Georgia's 159 counties had precinct closures in that time. So exactly one third of the state. And there's a couple of these precinct closures that just made enormous national news last year, right? With, um, what was it? Um, Randolph, Randolph County. County, seven right. of the nine polling pre- sites were on the block to be closed. That's right. And that proposal was defeated as a result of community and activist effort against the idea, although it did come back this year when they closed three different precincts um, instead of the seven. So you've documented that these polling closures had been a a growing, increasing trend in, in, in Georgia election politics. Right. We knew that was happening in Georgia and across other states, especially states that were previously covered by the Voting Rights Act, where they had to get approval from the federal government before closing precincts. So what we did on Sunday was the next step. Why did it matter? How did it affect people? Did it decrease turnout? And what we found is that, yes, when precincts close, when precincts move, that makes it harder for people to get to the polls. And it did reduce turnout by between 54,000 and 85,000 voters in the 2018 governor's election. And that's a that's a big number, especially when the election was as close as it was. We know that uh, Stacey Abrams was about 55,000 votes uh, behind Governor Kemp, but we also know it was more like 22,000 votes um, behind a potential runoff. If she had gotten 22,000 more votes, we would have been in a December runoff three weeks after the race. So uh, we're talking with the margins this thin, we're, we're, there's even more scrutiny on every vote that counts. 
Absolutely. Uh, in big races, when you're talking about 54 to 85,000 votes, that could potentially make a difference. And when you're talking about other races at the local level that are often much closer than that, it could certainly matter there too. Now, your research found that um, these closures and this 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 tendency, the projection of, of fifty four thousand to eighty five thousand, it was right on the top end. Yeah, fifty four to eighty five thousand um, disproportionately affected African American voters. Yes. So the increase in distance as a result of poll closures and precinct location changes affected Black voters twenty percent more than White voters, and they had a corresponding decrease in turnout about 20% compared to white voters. This was not a quick story. This is a story that took you the better part of a, you and you and one of our colleagues, Nick, the better part of a year. Talk about how you got it. Yeah, so really Nick Team did the data analysis and brought these numbers together. What he did is he mapped all of Georgia's 7 million voters. He we have their addresses because of their voter registration information, and we know the addresses of every election day precinct in the state and every early voting location in the state. So put it all on a map, calculated how far each address is from their registered precinct, crunched it all in a computer database, and came up with average distances per voter, per location, per jurisdiction, and then divided that up by income level, by race, by a whole bunch of different factors to find out how it had changed between 2012, when there were more precincts open, and 2018, when there were fewer precincts open. And then you can see the difference. This is intense analysis, again, that didn't take that takes a, a tremendous amount of resources and time. I got a text from a Democratic operative who said, damn, Mark Nisi, that was going to be the, the center of his thesis paper uh, for, for his PhD. So this we're talking high-level statistic analysis that you got vetted by two independent experts. That's right. So Nick Team was the data reporter here at the AJC who put all this information together, and he did as you say, check it out with statistics professionals from across the country to make sure that it made sense, that it stood up to academic rigor. And also, he posted his methodology in a link on with the article where if you want to know the details of the statistical analysis, you can click on there, and it's on a GitHub link in a Jupyter network, Jupyter notebook, which is a common way for computer programmers and statistics experts to share and go through these kind of data. Yeah, but a little bit above my pay grade, but, but certainly uh, it, it, cool that we can offer that to people who want to independently check it themselves. Now, what kind of reaction did you get from Secretary of State Raffensperger and, and Republican uh, elections, uh, state elections officials, I should say, about this? For the most part, they were quiet about it. Um, the comments I did hear were divided along the lines you would expect, where generally speaking, those on the right will talk about how voting has never been easier in Georgia. They say that voter registration is at all times highs. We had record turnout for a midterm last year. We have automatic voter registration bringing in hundreds of thousands of new voters every year. And they say that democracy is vibrant and well 
in Georgia. On the other side, from the left end of the spectrum, they say, no, this is another example of how voting obstacles are keeping people from voting, especially those in disadvantaged communities, those who live in rural areas, those who are African-Americans, those who do have less money or have to travel for their jobs and don't have transportation to get to their voting places, those who are older and have less mobility and don't have public transportation or can't drive. These are people on the margins who are being disadvantaged from from democratic processes. And so they say, yeah, sure, it is great that turnout is high, but what this AJC reporting showed is that it could be higher and people are being left out of the process. And this also brought up a clash that you explored a lot in 2018 over states versus local county, right? It's it's up to local elections officials to administer the election and to oversee uh, how many polling precincts there are, how many polling sites there are, all this stuff. Um, the state is sort of more of what? The issues guidelines. This happened. This came up so much last year, where um, Democrats and Stacey Abrams and, her, and Democratic allies would attack Governor Kemp, and Governor Kemp would say, who was then the Secretary of State, would say, um, "Well, look, it's up to the county elections officials. Some of them Demo- Democratic-run counties, some of them Republican-run counties, to minister the elections." And Stacey Abrams would say, "Well, it should be up to the state to give stronger guidelines, to give stronger over oversight over these elections." It seems like this has kind of revived that debate because now we've got more information about all the polling sites that are being closed locally and how they affect the outcome of the election. Yes. Without any sort of federal or state oversight of precinct closures, it's up to the county level to do what they want with precinct locations. And At the local level, it's often more practical concerns. How can I save money? How can I get the most efficiency out of the precincts I have? If I have a small precinct that serves a couple hundred people and a large precinct that serves 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000, well, maybe I, as an election official in rural Georgia, can get more bang for my buck by consolidating precincts. And these kind of political concerns about whether one party is advantaged over the other, or whether some voters might be disadvantaged as a result of less voting access, sometimes don't rise to the forefront, right? At the county level, it's all more practical than it is political or legal. Yeah, I mean, and, and oftentimes, as you mentioned, it comes down to money. And when we were talking about Randolph County earlier this or earlier this podcast, that was the county that in uh, what Southwest Georgia they closed seven, uh, tried to close seven of its nine uh, polling sites, and money was the main factor in that. Right? They were saying that it was expensive to keep all these polling sites, some of them used by a few dozen voters, open. Right, money and accessibility for the disabled was another issue raised. There's always questions about how genuine those concerns are, because if you think about it, let's say it takes three people to run a precinct, right? And generally they're paid minimum wage for 12 or 14 hours on election day. That's not a lot of money, really. Um, You're talking about, I haven't done the math recently, but a few hundred or a couple thousand dollars per precinct, Mm -hmm. right? And, but On the other hand, in Randolph County, for example, they had to make severe budget cuts. They, for the whole county, based on my recollection, 
in 2017, their budget was $4 million. In 2018, it fell to $3 million, and they had to take out loans and debt and tax anticipation notices to even make their budget. So let's say by closing a combined seven precincts, it would have saved fifteen dollars or $30,000. Is that a lot of money for a cash-strapped county in the middle of nowhere or not. You know, it doesn't seem like a whole bunch of money when you're talking about big issues like voting rights, but it does seem like a lot of money when you're talking about a county that's already a million dollars in the hole. Yeah, that's why this is there's so many grays to this this debate. Now, lawmakers confronted this issue earlier this year with that with a with a more comprehensive voting rights legislation. What would they end up doing? On precinct closures, there does have to be public notice and there does have to be public votes. A lot of the bill that passed this year dealt with other parts of our election system, new voting machines, notifications before registrations are canceled, those kind of issues. Election security was part of it, too. Um, There were a whole bunch of many election topics Mm -hmm. in in that bill, House Bill 316, which was a major point of debate in the legislature. And the main thing it did do was replace our 17-year-old voting system. Now, is there any, have you heard about any phase two of this next year where where, maybe even Democrats are pushing to make it even harder to close polling sites as a result of the story? There will be efforts to change election laws on both sides, especially in an election year. And certainly Democrats could introduce bills. Hypothetically, I've heard talk about, you know, more notice, more time before they were closed. But the broader solution of state or federal funding to keep precincts open is seems kind of dead on arrival. I don't think there's any political will to have state or federal oversight of precinct closures. It's still going to be left up to the counties. It was interesting to watch the national reaction to this as well, because several presidential candidates, including Julian Castro and Senator Elizabeth Warren, both uh, tweeted the story out saying that this is this is the case for more federal oversight. Um, what was your what was your your reaction to that to that to that reaction? My reaction is I'm always happy to see our reporting get more attention. And it does also play into the national context because just earlier this month, the u s. House of Representatives passed a bill that would have revised the Voting Rights Act to restore federal supervision of states that have had examples of discrimination in voting practices. Um, That bill passed mostly along party lines. It would be a way to restore federal oversight. But in the U.S. Senate, where the bill advances next, it has very little chance of moving forward because of the political dynamics. The Senate is controlled by majority Republicans, minority Democrats, and this is a partisan issue. In Georgia, Democrat uh, John Lewis was front and center when that bill passed the House. And you're right, it's, it is, to steal your phrase from earlier, it's DOA in, in the Senate uh, where Republicans have a 53-47 advantage. But 
just like voting rights was such a key issue in last year's state election, expect it to be a major issue in our doubleheader Senate race next year here in Georgia, um, because every Democrat, including the unannounced Democrat who's going to run against uh, Senator, uh, well, future Senator Kelly Leffler, will probably put voting rights and expanding voting rights at the center of his or her platform. Absolutely. That's what we saw in Democrat Stacey Abrams' campaign last year. She made voting rights a key issue, and she talked about it all the time. And it seems to have mobilized her supporters. That's what they rallied around. They rallied around her campaign, and her campaign made participation in the political system through voting rights a key point. One more major voting rights story that developed this week um, that you also were all over was the start of the so-called purge, voter registration cancels. I don't, I don't know what, what the best verb for it is. We've seen lots of different verbs, but about 300,000, more than 300,000 voter registration, inactive voter registrations were on the cusp of being canceled. Um, a last-minute lawsuit sought to block it. A judge said, eh, let's basically allow it to go forward. What's happening? What's the latest? Well, the cancellation did move forward Monday night. There, These cancellations that have been anticipated for months did happen. Originally, the Secretary of State's office released a list of 313,000 voter registrations that could be canceled, either because they moved away, filed change of address forms, mail from election officials had been returned as undeliverable, or they had been inactive since 2012 or before. And so that notice was put out. Since then, there was a huge flurry of activity, both from election officials that sent off notices in the mail to each of these voters' last registered addresses, and also from political groups, including the Democratic Party of Georgia and Fair Fight Action, which was formed after Stacey Abrams lost last year's election, to try to reach these voters. They started their own websites. They did phone banks. We saw four Democratic presidential candidates after the Atlanta debate participate in texting hundreds and thousands of voters on the list by jamming the enter key on their keyboards as fast as they could to send automated text messages saying, voters, you need to, you might, your registration might be canceled. And if you want to stay a registered voter, please re-register or please check your registration or contact election officials so you don't get canceled. And we now know the results of those efforts, both from the mail notifications and the outreach efforts. About 4,500 of the 313,000 voters that were originally scheduled to be canceled did contact election officials and did save their registrations from being canceled. So the final number of cancellations came in a little bit under 309,000. And a little context on these voter cancellations. Um, they're routine. States do them. Other states, Georgia, other states do them often. But what really concerned um, voting rights act advocates is that the inactive voters, not the people who moved away and moved to other states or, or who were deceased, but the voters who hadn't voted regularly in recent elections, who were culled from the list, um, really, really sparked a lot of the, the controversy here. That's right. Georgia is one of nine states that has what's called a use it or lose it law, a law where if you are inactive for a period of years, then your registration could be removed from the state's voter rolls. Every state has to 
periodically clean up their voter list. That's required by federal law. But Georgia is one of those states that goes above and beyond that by also canceling voters because they haven't participated in democracy in recent years. So that's what the court fight is about now, is out of those 309,000 voters, a little less than 120,000 of them were canceled because they haven't participated in more than seven years. And what will happen is now a U.S. federal judge is considering whether to reinstate some of those inactive voters. And whatever that ruling could could eventually go up to the appellate courts and maybe even the Supreme Court because it would apply to other states, right? Other states that have these, nine other states, have the same sort of regimen. That's always possible. However, the U.S. Supreme Court has already weighed in on this. Last year, in an Ohio case, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld cancellations of voters for inactivity. The Supreme Court said that voters can be removed from the voter list if they're inactive, but not just because they're inactive. They also have to be sent notifications warning them that they were about to be canceled. And that's why Georgia added that process this year to comply with what the U.S. Supreme Court said needed to be done to ensure that this process was fully compliant. And as you mentioned, this is just one piece of a sprawling, huge, sweeping, I don't know what the best adjective for it is, but big, huge lawsuit um, from from Stacey Abrams' Fair Fight Action Group and other voting rights groups um, targeting Georgia's election procedures. So that's just one facet of it. But we'll see a lot more develop over in the course of that lawsuit next year, right? won't we? That's right. The lawsuit is... Uh alleging problems in Georgia elections that are far and wide, everything from precinct closures, registration cancellations, long lines at the polls, rejected absentee ballots, rejected provisional ballots, lack of training of election workers, missing voter registrations. The list goes on and on, and all of it is wrapped up in this one big lawsuit filed by Firefight Action in the days after the 2018 governor's election. And it's moving in legal terms relatively quickly. Uh, We're in the discovery process. If you check the docket every day, there's more expert testimony. There's more depositions. Governor Brian Kemp has to now give testimony the judge ruled in a deposition um, sometime before January 10th. And currently, in the last schedule posted, trial was set to begin March 23rd, one day before the presidential primary. Now, we'll see if that hold, the judge put the schedule on hold while some of these issues are being resolved. So it seems kind of likely to me that that schedule will be pushed back a little bit and we won't have this one moment of huge drama where we're fighting about voting rights at the same time as we're Presidential voting. candidates are, are <laughs> right. begging for um, our votes. But wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be a, an amazing yeah. juxtaposition? Right. Man. And that's a good reminder, too, because... Um, the the timeline is tight, right? May, March 24th, presidential primary, May, regular primary, July runoffs, November elections, January 2021 20, potential runoff for 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 the uh, for the federal election. Um, so a lot a lot of a lot of uh, deadlines to meet for the Secretary of State's office this coming year. That's right. It'll be so full. There's going to be so much happening all the time. On one side, you'll have political candidates visiting Georgia, trying to recruit voters and trying to make their appeal. And I don't think it's happened as much yet. We've seen it a little bit, but the closer and closer we get to the primary, the hotter and hotter it's going to get. And then at the same time, on the policy side, we'll see 
bills in the legislature. We'll see court cases. We'll see these struggles over voting rights front and center. Yeah, well, it's a good reminder. Follow Mark Nisi on Twitter. It's at Mark Nisi. Um, and also follow him on the AJC because he is covering this beat. He has many beats, but this is probably his top, it's safe to say your top priority uh, in, in the election year is actually covering the election machinery and the policies that help you, our listeners and readers, actually get out there and vote. That's right. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you. That's all for this edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Visit AJC.com slash politics for all the latest in Georgia news. I'm Greg Bluestein signing off. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.